attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Hello and welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I'm your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. This week's guest on the podcast, Sandy DeVore. Sandy DeVore was a camper in the late 40s and into the early 50s. Uh, I have to tell you, I've been sitting on this one for a while. Sandy, I met Sandy when I drove around the country recording podcasts all over the place. I met Sandy out in L.A. Sandy came to some prominence in the Hollywood scene. He is a uh, graphic designer, and his first huge hit was he designed the partridges in the opening of the partridge family show when the partridge breaks out of the egg and walks and then the other partridges are behind it that's his design as well as the logo for united artists and then just a ton of films all through the 70s and 80s and and all kinds of stuff not just films but those were really the big prominent things that really put him on the map and made him hot sandy is a fascinating guy we had an a great talk and the reason i'm taking so much time to sort of explain this is that Sandy didn't have 100% great experiences at camp. And so when we sat down together and we started talking about camp, uh, he shared both his fantastic experiences as well as those that weren't so great. And uh, I've, I've really struggled with how exactly to present this. Um, I think it needs to be told I think uh, to some degree, I feel like there's a certain journalistic effort that happens with the project that, um, you know, all the stories, as I've said from the beginning, all of our stories together, that's what makes the story of camp. And for some people, not every single piece of their camp history or camp thoughts are 100% positive. And it would be wrong of me to sort of whitewash that out of the story. And to be honest, Sandy really touched my heart sitting in a room with him and talking through his journey at camp really it really got to me it really uh moved me and the fact that um he still wanted to talk about camp after all this time and uh and in a good positive light at the end of the day really spoke to everything we're doing with the project so I only say this as a as a little bit of a warning ahead of time that, you know, if you're used to listening to the history podcast, this episode's not going to sound like one you normally hear. But I think it is important to hear. And I think it's it tells you everything about who we are at camp and uh and the philosophy and the and the place that we built and the magic of it. So uh there you go. I hope you enjoy. Sandy DeVore on the Camp Ojibwe History Podcast.
and foremost, please state your name. Sandy DeVore. And years at camp. Years at camp from 1944. It may have started in 1943, but I'm sure it started in, I'm sure about 1944. All the way up through cabin 15, except for one summer when I sort of miss being with my family and my mom. And they went to a place called Moors, a resort that was 75 miles out of Chicago, which at that time, without freeways and Edens and this and that, you thought you were out, you were far away. Mm, sure, it was in Burlington, Wisconsin, Moors Resort. A lot of people from Chicago went there. And I went there for one year, took a break after cabin five or seven. Mm. I know I missed nine. Okay. Because that's the way it used to go. You'd go from cabin three to cabin five to cabin seven or one to cabin. I, I don't even know if there was a cabin one, but you went odd. Mm. You know, we all stayed together. Yeah. The same bunch of guys. And then when you get to the oldest cabin, you get put and together. Then we got when you got to cabin 12, that's about the time he built 13, mm. the big one across the road. Mm -hmm. That wasn't a big open square with the beds and everything lining the side. It had um, cubicles mm. with bunk beds. Yeah. That was a huge change. Yeah, I didn't like it much. <laughs> well, it was claustrophobic. Yeah. You know, you woke up, instead of looking out the big window at the trees and see if it was raining, you were staring into your shelves and your T-shirts and underwear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and in those days, I mean, today's world, we, we have bunk beds in the cabins, and so we might have 10, maybe 12 bunk beds in a cabin in the back um, off the counselor's porch, but in your time, you only had maybe eight beds... Single oh, beds no. in a cabin? One, two, three, four, five, six. maybe eight or nine. Yeah. And then there were two out in the counselor's thing with the little partition. So a lot more room, a lot more. For, you wake up and you got room to stretch. and. Yeah, it was like one big room and um, the wooden floor. And it was open. Yeah. It was wide open. Do you remember how you first heard about camp? Yeah. I think my father told me that there was a man coming over to our apartment. I lived in Austin at the time on the west side. Mm. I loved Austin. I loved growing up there. Yeah. And we lived near Laramie and Madison in an apartment. And my father said... <laughs> that somebody was going to come over and show me movies, show us movies of a camp. And he wanted to know what I, what I would think. It must have been on a Sunday because my father had a dry goods store. He brings over the projector. He brings over the projector and he sets it up in the front room with a little with a screen. Um, either it was a screen or 
some kind of sheet or something like that. And he showed pictures of the camp. And, um, and we looked at the pictures, and um, my father asked me if I thought I'd like to go there for the summer. That was it. It wasn't very complicated at all. Hmm. And it looked nice. I loved playing. I was nine years old, but I loved playing ball, and I loved sports. And um, So you were already a sports guy coming into yeah, the yeah, camp yeah. situation. Yeah. I... Yeah, I, 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 I love that about the camp mm. because I, I had an easy time with competition and I love playing ball. I love do, doing it all. Yeah. Now, when you went, were there any other kids from your neighborhood, anyone you knew already? Yeah, the only other kids... The only other kids, the only other family that was raised in Austin were the Bartlesteins. Mm. And the Bartlesteins were, the Bartlesteins were like special at Camp Ojibwe. Mm. And there was Hank Bartlestein, there was Gordy Bartlestein, there was Irv Bartlestein, and Mackie Bartlestein. I guess the two brothers. Right. And their kids. I saw Gordy Bartlestein in grammar school. We went to the same grammar school. Maybe he was a half a year ahead of me or something. Mm. Mm -hmm. But we weren't friends or anything like that. So just got, I just went that first year. And um, that was it. And those days you took the train up? We went. We packed the big um, case. We, we packed the big trunk mm -hmm. with the things that were listed that you're supposed to bring. And, and one duffel bag, one big green duffel bag. And we went down, we got on the train, and uh, we went. So you get to camp, okay. it's your first year. Mm -hmm. What are the things that stick out that you remember about that first experience? Okay, we, we were in cabin three, and it seemed like we had just a, a perfect set of guys. Mickey Schwartz was with me. Oh. Mickey, Michael Roy, mm -hmm. and Davey Baum, and um, Ivan Marovitz. And I think Glick was there, and Howie Indies, Barry Swick. We had a good crew yeah. in Cabin 3. We were pioneers. We were the pioneer group, which, you know, is the first group. Right. And um, we settled in and um, got going from there. Nice. Now, these days at camp, the kids come up, they're split into um, leagues by their age, like pioneers, you know, um, they use different words, but leagues by their age, and then within each league, they are on teams for each sport that they stay on the whole time. Yeah. 
Was it the same sort of setup? You got yeah. on a team and you yeah. played um, ball all summer? We had pioneers and then the middle uh, section. I don't know why I can't remember what they called the middle guys. Was it, um, let's see, there's pioneers, midgets, juniors. Pioneers, juniors, and seniors. Hmm. And we had Watermelon League, which was a combination of pioneers, juniors, and seniors were on a team. Oh, all together. Yeah. Hmm. You played each other the entire season. Hmm. And then there was the red and white teams. Hmm. Tell, the camp no one's red. really talked about that. Can you tell me a little bit about how that went? Well, when specific teams like the White Sox weren't playing in the Watermelon League mm-hmm. against the Indians or something, then for other situations like a touch football game or soccer or something else um, that they had to fill up after dinner or after lunch or after rest period with um, they divided the camp into red and white. I see. And so and, and that, that went on all summer long? And seniors and pioneers in red. And, and so you'd have a touch football game with the red team versus the white team. Um, but that was the whole camp. Yeah. Were red and whites. And did that, the color war, as it were, did that go on all summer long? All summer long. Mm. Whenever they didn't have a specific thing to do, like um, collegiate week competition, right. or, and I think, I, I may be wrong, but I think the red and the white thing was also included in the track and swimming mm. thing. But those were individual, um, those were individual athletic performances. Hmm. So you could say the red team won over the year of the white team, but it was in no way as big as winning Collegiate Week. Sure. I mean, Collegiate Week. You know, you would cut off your pinky to, <laughs> to win collegiate league. Jesus. And I won it. Nice. I did get to win collegiate week, week before I was through. And in 1979, sitting on that couch and throwing out a whole bunch of things, I broke the trophy. I don't know if it could have been fixed or repaired, but it was like lying in three or four pieces with the this the... the the light tan, almost white, round shell. Mm. And the, I don't know exactly why I didn't try to get it fixed or something. But I think it could be because some bad memories from later on mm. in my experience may have dissuaded me from giving the um, amount of love to that trophy that I 
should have hmm. or did have, had, yeah. had had. Do you mean um, specifically about Collegiate Week or about camp in general? Well, what happens, I had a marvelous, I loved Ojibwa. Davy Baum and I worked together on redesigning the Indian medicine, the Indian drawing of the Indian for the Daily Medicine Man, which is sure, the daily of newspaper. Mm -hmm. I mean, I participated in everything. As you can see, I was smaller than everybody else. Yeah. But I was always winning. <laughs> I remember the the first year we made our own plaques. They were arrow. They were the shape of an arrowhead, but you sanded them and you finished them and you shellacked them. Mm -hmm. And then in woodshop. Right. And then you put a little screw at the top with the thing where you can hang on a nail at the top of it. And at the end of the season, you got, they did it with a rubber stamp. Mm. You got credits. You got your credit for what you had accomplished that, se that, that summer. So the things that you got good at or, or tried or, or things or like that. Or won. Oh, of course, or won, yeah. Yeah. Those, so... The thing that I love the most, I don't know why, maybe because I enjoyed going to the movies and seeing it on the movie tone sports. There was no TV yet. Right, of course. And when you go to the movies, I would love to watch the great boxers mm. show clips from Madison Square Garden in between the the Double Bill movies. Right, sure, of course. And you'd see guys like Sugar Ray, or you'd see guys like uh, Ike Williams, and, um, championship middleweights, mm -hmm. and Tony Zaya. And, and I used to like to mimic them. And so every Wednesday night was boxing. Mm. And the boxing ring was right as you went past cabin seven and the rec hall and you entered the big second field. Okay. Where the volleyball nets was mm -hmm. and then further down the tennis thing was. And that's where the boxing ring was. In that open area there. In that open area just to the to the to the to the right. Okay. In back of cabins I think seven is the first cabin after the entrance to the second yeah, big field. Yeah, I got you. So if you walked between now the rec hall and, and cabin seven, a, it would be off to the right. Right, the big light over it, and they had the four posts, and they had legit ropes, mm. and they had handlers in each corner. <laughs> you know, guys who, you know, rubbed you down <laughs> and then pull. you know, we didn't have boxing shorts, so we all wore our bathing trunks. Sure. And they, they, they put your bathing suit okay, take a deep breath and everything. And you thought you were fighting. I mean, you really thought that this was this was like the real thing. All yeah. right. And they'd, one guy would be rubbing your shoulders and telling you, keep doing what you're doing. And, and 
I was pioneer boxing champion. Mm. And they scheduled me every Wednesday night. I fought every Wednesday night. Wow. And they matched me up with everybody. Hmm. Everybody took a shot. You cleared out the division. <laughs> and on my thing at the end of the year where they stamped your accomplishments, it said, first place, boxing. Second place, track. Second place, I believe, swimming. Davy Baum, I think, was always first in track and swimming. That was his thing. Yeah. You couldn't beat him. I think I beat him once individually when something happened in the crawl. But nobody could beat him in the backstroke. He was a champion. Nobody could beat him in the butterfly. And, and, um, but I remember Mickey Schwartz was a good breaststroker. Mm. He had a good breaststroke. And these things were of ultimate importance. These, Certainly. This, this yeah. competition. So I got that plaque with those stamps on it, first place boxing, second place swimming, second place track. So then in my second year, um, they kept me boxing, and I still had, I hadn't gotten beat. Mm. But by the second year, you can see, even as a junior, I was so much smaller still than everybody else. Yeah, they started. So it started, there was nobody, you know, to put me in with. But I remember something that has always bothered me. Not bothered me, but there was a wonderful guy at the camp. And his name was Artie Lerner. Okay. And Artie Lerner had some had some physical handicap. Okay. But he did everything. Okay. I mean, he 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 did everything, and he did it twice as hard as anybody else. Sure. Artie Lerner was part of everything. And then at dinner one night when they announced the Wednesday night card. And now I was maybe a year or two older, mm -hmm. and we were all starting to fill out a little bit. They, Al Schwartz got up there, and in his usual manner, Boys! <laughs> Tonight's card, I mean, he did have a way of performing. Yes. He was a performer. At least that's the way I saw it. In those days, you didn't go around saying, I think Al Schwartz was a performer. You didn't say anything about anything. Sure, of course. didn't talk much in those days. Right. About 
what you thought. All you did was you started thinking about girls. And once in a while you talked to the other guys about girls. <laughs> but, so he said, uh, tonight in the middle, in the junior division, Artie Lerner will meet Sandy DeVore. Hmm. Okay, so if you're, let's say, 11 years old, and you're, you're thinking to yourself, what's the reason for that? Why are you making Artie feel like he's as much a participant as everybody else? So you're going to put him in with a guy who hasn't been beaten in the ring. Because I fought everybody. Mm -hmm. I fought Stewie Wallace. I fought, and they were my friends. Sure. Ivan Marovitz. I even fought one of the Bartlesteins, Mackie Bartlestein. I, I, I fought Bear Swick. I fought Indies. I fought anybody and everybody. But why would they put Artie? in the ring, and so I decided what I would do is, I, the way I figured it, it was to let Artie feel that he was the same as everybody else, and I, don't, I didn't know what I was expected to do, I was sensible enough right. to know not to hit him. So, you know, like when you're, you're like when I can compare it to the original jitterbugging when you, you sort of <laughs> dance, when you, you half sort of held him, but then you pulled away and then you pulled back in. Sure. And, and so, the bell rang, and for two or three rounds, that's what I, I did. Artie came in, and he tried to do this and that, and I held his arm and rubbed his arm. I, I didn't hit him, but I didn't want him to look like a fool. Right, right. And I wanted... So there had to be some standing close to each other, and I grab, I'd grab him around... Mm -hmm. No, no more complicated, or no more hurtful than if you were hugging somebody. Hi, sure. how you doing? Yeah. Al Schwartz came over to my corner, and I never saw a meaner look on a man's face in my life. Hmm. And he grabbed me by the arm in a man's grip, and he said, "What are you doing?" What are you doing? What's wrong with you? Hmm. And uh, I just looked up at him. I just looked straight up into his face, knowing that I was doing exactly the right thing to make Artie part of this 
competition. But I had done nothing right. to hurt him. But I couldn't stand there and fall down on the ground. Right, right. You know. And that sticks out in my mind as one piece of business that I'll always remember. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you've and asked afterward, yourself. Afterward, Artie came up to me in the ring and he said, great fight, great fight, great, great fight. And he tried to hug me and stuff like that. And that made me feel good. But I'll never forget hmm. what Al Schwartz did. I don't know what he would have wanted me to do. And I, at 11 years old, I thought I had figured it out a pretty good way to do it, as opposed to saying to him after lunch, why are you putting me in the ring with Artie Learning? Right. I was 11 years old. Right. A couple of years down the road, I did know what to say to Al Schwartz mm. in a situation that required saying something to me. But the years went on and I went back to camp. What, what, you want to ask me anything? Yeah, so I mean, well, um, but so it's interesting that as clearly as impactful as that was, it didn't stop you from going to camp. It just created a moment in time that you've probably asked yourself about a million times, but. Oh, oh no, it didn't stop me. Yeah. Nobody ever said anything to me. I'm sure that everybody sitting around there wondered what we were doing in the ring together anyway. Just as much as you were. Yeah, Just as absolutely. much as I was, and I was the one who had to perform and make it look like okay. Right, right. Hmm. Nobody ever said anything to me like, you touched Artie. Or, I mean, it, Artie, was, was it, Artie was treated like everybody. Well, we've touched on... We've touched on a lot of sports, and it seems like you, you were per doing pretty well on the athletic side of things. I was doing great in the athletic side. Camp has always had, as much as they're known for a competitive sports camp, they've always had that other side, too, and that's the entertainment side. And whether well, it's the minstrel shows or the Jubilee or... Can you sing the minstrel song from Camp Ojibwe? Well, I... <laughs> can I, you do it? I, I, first of all, I will tell you that the minstrel <laughs> show is obviously long gone. I, I, Certainly. There's no... But I'm not bringing up the minstrel show because it's politically correct or incorrect. Sure. I'm bringing it up as something memorable. There's nothing. It was a wonderful evening's entertainment. Right. Right or wrong. I, I'm going to be 82. And I sort of get a kick out of the fact that I can sit here and sing you the minstrel strong. If you wanted, <laughs> if you wanted to hear it. Well, listen. I mean, we're here. I'd love to hear a little bit. I okay. the only I only know a little bit of the tune of the one. It went like this. Okay. Minstrel, minstrels tonight, no longer white. Campo Jib was minstrel show. Big bass trombone, strike up the tune. There'll be a gala show tonight. Stro Something this hall, come one and all, 
Camp Ojibwa's minstrel show. Gangplank's all in, so let's begin. Camp Ojibwa's minstrel show. <laughs> uh, but that, that was the show, and the performances were great because they had some wonderful college guys who were counselors who were really good, talented guys, writers and, and performers and actors. Mm -hmm. And there was Bruce Chlorophene who did Al Jolson. He had a speech impediment. He stuttered. And one of his therapies was to mimic Al Jolson's records. Huh. And I didn't know that. And he did it on stage as part of his therapy. Hmm. Or something that, not his therapy, something that he could do beautifully, and he did it. And they dressed him in blackface and everything, like Jolson. And there wasn't a dry eye in the rec hall. Yeah. He was great. Hmm. He just died, I heard. Yeah, he just passed away a few yeah. months ago. His son comes to post camp, and I, I'm friendly with him. Yeah. Um, I had never gotten to meet Bruce, It was though. great. It was, it was one of the great performances. It was, it was one of the things that turned my head on to maybe someday I would like to get into business of doing shows and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Simply by seeing Chlorophene and the Minstrel Show. Mm. And there were a lot of talented counselors and junior counselors. And they had they lined up, and there was a chorus behind them. I think I was even in the chorus a couple of times mm. because when I was a kid, I had a good voice. Mm -hmm. And we had inter cabin sing, where some counselor would pick out a couple of songs and would teach them to the cabin. And I remember we won inter cabin sing. I think when I was in cabin. either 7 or 11. And I think that the counselor was Freddie Sherman, and I think we sang Little White Lies. Okay. The world was... The world was all aglow, and heaven was in your eyes. The night that you told me those little white lies. And I got to sing that as a solo. Oh, very nice, yeah. And so we won. And then we got up. One night, I remember, when it was 1945, and the war had just ended. Oh, I don't know if I had a cold and couldn't take the train up or was getting over a fever, or if because my Uncle Charlie, who was just got back from the South Pacific, and who had had, who had just recoup, was recuperating from a big battle mm. with the Japanese on Bougainville, I, he was close to my dad, and I think maybe they sent me up a day or two after the train. Yeah. And when we got up there, we got up there in time for lunch, so we sat at a round table. I didn't go and sit with my old gang. Oh, you were with the guest table. I yeah. was with the guest table, and Al got up there and said that a great camper and a great athlete and a great guy, 
and his uncle Charlie. Let's welcome back Sandy DeVore and my camp, my cabin did a boom chicka boom for me. Nice. You know boom chicka boom. Yeah, sure, of course. Of course. Sandy's back. Yay, Sandy. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, They started to pound the table. And that made me feel like a million bucks. Yeah, for sure. And so after that, Charlie went back to Chicago. He stayed up there at Dad's Lodge for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. That's why I think maybe they sort of rigged it. Yeah. The fam, my dad. Or, and I got back with my campers. I went and got my, my stuff and put it in the, in the shelves and got back into action. Hmm. And um, we just went on year after year and I continued to compete and continued to... Um, and, and then, I guess you saw the pictures that 47, we won Watermelon League with the White Sox. Um, some things, I started to become aware of something. I was aware of the fact that every time they had the, se- the surprise powwow, you know what the powwow is? Sure, certainly. Oh, okay. With the Braves, absolutely. They would have the powwow, and then you would all be put on silence. Mm-hmm. The benches were lined up down by the beach. Right. I have this part. This transition now is something I've lived with all my life. So, if you don't mind, I'm just going to tell you the truth. Absolutely. So I'm sitting on a bench, and all of a sudden I become very aware of the fact that Davy Baum is standing there with a headdress on and his arms folded. I think he was the medicine man. And Harvey Freed. who would become <clears throat> the number one camper because of his athletic ability mm-hmm. in track. And Davey was, of course, still taking the swim meets. And once in a while, I would still do my second on the 50 and stuff like that. But I became all of a sudden aware of the fact that these were my, Davey was my friend. And I, I realized as they walked up and down the aisle, boom, 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 that all the guys, most of the guys were Braves. Hmm. Davey was standing there with a headdress and his arms folded. Well, I came very aware of the fact that I'm sitting there and in the last couple of years 
Nobody's come by and tapped me on the shoulder hmm. and stopped the drum because that's the way you're chosen. That's how you get picked. I got you. The next day, I was walking by myself with my hands in my pockets. Right behind the tree on the diamond number one. Okay. I was walking with my hands in my pockets and my head down. I wasn't a nine-year-old in cabin three winning every boxing match and winning everything I touch and happy, happier than who's, I was hurt. And that's during the time when you change from a little boy, those couple of years, from nine to 12 or 13, whatever. Yeah. And I was walking along, and some counselor walked by me. And I don't, and I don't remember it being a counselor I liked or didn't like. It was just a dark-haired guy who was a counselor or in charge of something or wood shop or something, I don't know. And he walked by me and he looked down and he made some remark. And I remember the feeling I had of being totally alone at that moment. Hmm. And he said something like, well, maybe your attitude, maybe your attitude is the reason you're not a brave. It was meant to be hurtful. And I looked up at him. And I said to him, fuck you and fuck the Braves. It's the first time in my life I remember not behaving like a, a little boy. Hmm. But he touched a, a part of me that had grown up a bit. And I knew that he said it to hurt me. And so I said that back to him. And I kept walking. From then on, in the next couple of years, I went and I competed and I participated. I did everything that I was always taught to do. And that I had loved so much in all the years. Now you're different, you're up in cabin 11 or 12 or whatever hell it is, you're 14 years old, you're getting ready to go, or, or you are your first year as a senior or something mm -hmm. like that. Sure. And you're not getting picked first. And Al's passing you by, and I'm saying, hi, Sandy boy. And Novak was giving you a look out of the corner of his eye. And I hadn't had a beef with anybody, except that one instance where that guy was mean and put me down for not having been chosen as a brave while here.
my friends had. So I started, my personality started to take the shape of a teenager, not a kid, and so I started to isolate a little bit because I wasn't, I wasn't welcome anymore. My buddies were not my buddies anymore. Nobody said anything. There were no arguments. Right. I still showed up. I still slid in head first. If it was watermelon championship. Yeah. I still if it was touch football red and white, we used that big field mm -hmm. from one end where the rifle range used to be to the woods. Okay. Was a touch. Was the touch. I remember Dad was up visiting on Dad's weekends. I caught a bullet pass with a winning touchdown. I still competed because that's what Ojibwe was all about. Mm -hmm. But something had changed. But I also had feelings for my pals and for the people and for the place. Yeah, of course. Of I course. wasn't an instrument growing a beard and hair and duh. I was becoming who I was going to be. Yeah. And then came the time when the next year I was supposed to be, we were supposed to all be junior counselors. Mm. But there was some kind of thing going on where there was a big football player in Chicago who was friends with the Bartlesteins and who I knew from the neighborhood. I didn't know him because he led Chicago in all football records and points scored. He scored 100 points in one game when Austin played wow. Marshall or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he was all city, all state. His name was Mickey Gitlitz. Mm. And he was a nice fellow, I guess. Mm -hmm. But they wanted to bring him up to Camp Ojibwe because he was a star. He was a real star in Chicago. But to bring him up there now at the age of 16 or whatever it was, he didn't come, he couldn't bring him up as a camper. Right. So you brought him up as a JC because the Bartlesteins were going to be JCs. Hmm. Gordy. Hank already had been a counselor. Hank was a little older. Hank was a nice guy. Hmm. He was quiet, but he was a nice guy. And so they needed room for a, Jace, a junior counselor. And so my father was up there at the time. And I was walking across the big field with him, heading towards the tree. You know, in center field, deep center field? Mm -hmm. I don't know how Mo Silvers used to snag that 16-inch cleanser out, but every time somebody would poke it out there, he would be able to just reach up and before it hit that tree and catch it with one hand. Do you know Mo? I don't. Well, he used to walk all slumped over, and he was sort of a comedic kind of a serious guy and a counselor. And he looked like the last... He, 
He was the last guy you thought could lope around center field like Joe DiMaggio, but he did. Mm. But anyway, that tree in center field has that little... With that? Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's still there. Yeah, with the little tree bench around it? It's yeah, the, the tree bench. Yeah. And we're walking there, and all of a sudden, Al Schwartz comes walking up, approaches me and my dad, who were walking. We were just walking over to cabin 13. And make the situation short. He tells my father that Nate, Sandy's cabin mates and friends for all these years, they don't like him anymore. And they have all said that they don't want him to be a junior counselor with them. Wow. Now, if you're an Ojibwe, which you are, mm -hmm. and you know that going up on that train and then you get off that train and get in that big red truck on the back, you just know that you're going to the best place in the world, and, and this year you're going to win Collegiate Week. Yeah. And everything else. And all of a sudden, this hits me. And he comes right out and says it. So, we'd like to have you consider waiting a year and coming back as camper, waiting a year, and then we'll let you be a junior counselor. But his friends don't like him anymore. Huh. And so, if I would have walked away, and I can't say that this is the, that this is true. It would have left room for somebody else. That year I was still a camper. Stuart Wallace and I, he was the last senior picked for the team Maine. I don't know, it was the first year we did Maine. But I know it was Maine because I remember the wind song. And Stewie Wallace was picked, and then you start at the end and go back and get the rest of the seniors that haven't been picked because Freed and Baum and all those guys were picked way up front. Right. And he said, all right, we'll take Stewie Wallace and then start him back up the other way to the end. And, we'll, and Sandy DeBoer. We had nothing special. But we won it hands down. <laughs> and we didn't have Freed, and we didn't have Baum, and we didn't have anybody. And so he said this to my father, in front of my father. I, said, I looked at Al, and I said, no, no. I've got that coming, and I'll be here to take it. And so I went back the next year, 
And I got cabin three, which was my first cabin, as junior counselor. They did find room for Gitlin, so he was up there his first year at the camp, but he was a counselor. But he was a big star. Yeah. And nobody talked to me for the whole summer. Twice I went up to the counselor's lodge to see if anybody would talk to me. And they made believe I wasn't there. So I didn't go back up there again. So I did the whole eight weeks. And then one day, while waiting on table, they announced that there was going to be a special fight night because they hadn't been doing fights. There was going to be a special fight night and the main event was going to be Davy Bomb who was going to fight Sandy DeVore. Wow. He you didn't did, ask me. I was going to say, you didn't know anything about it. No. Hmm. I won't. I didn't, I wasn't, he didn't ask me or tell me. Hmm. Nor was it in the spirit of Ojibwe competition because I never walked away from anything that was in the spirit of Ojibwe competition. Another was that plaque where I got first place boxing that was lost somewhere in my West Rogers Park home and I never got. I would trade that Emmy over there mm -hmm. for that flag. Mm. So much I love the place. And so my father was there that night. We all sat there and they had a couple of juniors, guys throwing these big gloves at each other and banging <laughs> sure. around and so forth. Sure. It wasn't much of a fight night. A little bit of an undercard with the kids. And then he announced the main event. And I was sitting there with my father. Davey got into the ring with his robot. Mm. And in the in the way a 16 or 17 year old boy's mind says to him, it translated to, I'm not going to let someone else get off using me as his agenda. Yeah. And I sat there next to my father and I had no desire to get into the ring. I used to love it when right. it was Camp Ojibwe competition. Right. But this was different. This was different. Yeah. This was someone wanting to take something out on me. Yeah. To teach you a lesson. And I just sat there. And everybody sort of looked at each other. Nobody said anything. Hmm. 
No counselor said anything. Nobody said any remarks or anything like that. It was just that I knew what this was, that this was, I wasn't asked. Right, right. That's all. I wasn't asked and told. If it was a reasonable athletic oh, endeavor, it, you would it, have been asked. Top. Absolutely. That's, I never saw it. I always relished it. Yeah. But this was personal, and I wasn't going to let somebody do this to me, and I knew that this was the first time in my life I was going to have to do what I felt as opposed to what other guys or kids might think or this or that or what. Yeah. And I mean, just the, the peer pressure of that moment alone, I'm, I'm sure you can and still feel it. And my father sitting there. And your father right there. Yeah. And So we walked away and everybody dispersed very quietly. I remember the look on Al Schwartz's face as he stood there just looking across, because I was sitting across the ring, he was looking, I was sitting there on a bench looking at him. And we walked away and everybody just sort of filtered to their cabins. My father said to me, they might think you're afraid of him. I said, it doesn't matter to me what they think. Mm. It doesn't matter what they think. What a, what a terribly hard thing to say at that moment in your life. And I didn't, I didn't even think of saying to him, uh, to my father, I'm going to grab my, as much of my stuff as I can. I'm going to go back to Eagle Waters with you tonight. Yeah. I finished out the season. Wow. Waited the tables. Showed up for Reveille. Nobody ever s said a word to me about that night. Hmm. Nobody ever. And I, st I stayed there and stuck it out. Never heard another word about it. But to come to me after all those years of being a good camper mm -hmm. and a good competitor following it right down the line to come up to me in front of my father out of the blue and say the fellas that have been with him all through him, they don't like him anymore they don't want him I'll never I don't know if that was true I've never I've never I've gotten along with some of the roughest and toughest people in my life. The biggest in the entertainment business who could drive a harder deal than anybody on the face of the earth. I never had everybody turn around and say, we don't want to work with you anymore because we don't, we don't like you anymore. Hmm. It's the only time anybody ever said anything like that to me. So... Of course, I was never asked back. The next year, I took a ride up there with one of my high school buddies from Sullivan. 
Shelly Colbert. He says, you ever been up there? He says, no. I says, well, come on, let's take a ride up there. I guess I just had to see it one more time. I parked in the lot and walked up to Blacktop, and I saw the Maravitzes. Mm. They were standing around, and they greeted me. And I was saying, nice to see you, Papa. And I stayed there for a few minutes, and um, not until 1988 did I go back up there fishing, and I took my my girl with the, the girl I was with, the young yeah. lady, lady I was I was with. I took her up there to show her the place. I got pictures of the mess hall, cabin three, and everything. They're, they're in there, but. That's it. That's this. That's it. It it was the greatest, and the most wonderfully pure joy and fun. And when I walked in there in 1988 into the rep room and I saw Watermelon League and my name on those plaques, yeah, where the birch is still. Curling a little bit each year and so forth. I'm proud of that. And when we won Collegiate Week, and you're in the rec hall, and they announced the winner, we sang the song. They usually read off the names and this and that. Mm -hmm. None of that happened when we won. I was so surprised after they announced. Everybody sort of knew we had won mm -hmm. because there wasn't a fold and a blanket. There wasn't a, a point taken off. We won it on everything. Mm -hmm. We didn't steal the swim meet or steal the track meet and, and kill them and everything. We sort of nickel and dimed them <laughs> and won. Mm -hmm. And I showed her, but the season had closed and postseason was on. Sure. The camp was empty. And I just showed my girl where I had spent my youth, this place that I talked about. But I won collegiately. And in 1979, after 10 years of me being as hot as a pistol out here, mm -hmm. because all, I just had all this, this happening. The way it ended up bothered me. There was still pain from it. To go from being Sandy Boy, even Pearl Schwartz used to talk to me once in a while. And I never saw her talk to anybody. She played tennis with Molly and them during the rest period. And then Ellen Marie, after she grew up, she came out here for a while to California. Mm -hmm. And she sought me out. Hmm. And she didn't have anybody out here. And I spent time and introduced her to people and so forth. She was a grown up now, not a little girl sitting in those two white chairs yeah. watching. The concerts play the JCs during rest period. Mm -hmm. But Sid Novak 
hesitating on the ball. <laughs> and faking it out. <laughs> I remember everything. It was wonderful. And I guess... They finally did make me a brave. But by that time, I didn't care. So, if I had turned into an asshole and deserved that, all that, then I wish to God somebody would have cared enough about Sandler. That's what they everybody used to call me. Mm. Sandler. Somebody would have told me, hey, you've totally changed. Straighten your act up. But I wasn't aware of any change. I knew I wasn't nine years old anymore. But I was still doing it the Ojibwe way. Yeah. Hmm. It would have been so much easier for you to be bitter and not like that place at all. Oh. To have, like you said, gotten your stuff, gotten in the car with your dad, gone to Eagle Waters cleared a house and never come back. It would have been so much easier. No, because I um, I never, like most Jewish Chicagoans of the generation before me, mm -hmm. they considered Camp Ojibwa Al Schwartz. Al Schwartz is Camp Ojibwe. I see. Synonymous. That's it. It right. is him. To me, Camp Ojibwe was part of my soul. The counselor who was supposed to pick number one in the 50-yard dash would go, the point of me. Hmm. That doesn't have anything to do with Al Schwartz. That that's, has nothing that's to do with you Al and Camps. So to me, hmm. Ojibwe is not Al Schwartz. Ojibwe was guys like that Helpador, who was kind, good guy. Moose Miller, who used to be a big strong, tough guy from Wisconsin, but the guys like, there was a guy named Juddy, who had a big gut. Hmm. He was a good guy. Most, most silver. Even Gordy Bartlestein, who never talked to me, because I wasn't part of his clique. Yeah. But when I heard that he was playing football for Austin, in his senior year, I went out to the stadium to see the game just because I heard that he was Austin's new halfback. And I remember their father pulling up in a beautiful Chris Craft and parking it by the dock. I remember Davy Bob and me going fishing and he casting his lure, hitting me in the head with it. And, and 
he thought that was so funny, he started laughing so hard that he could almost fell out of the boat. And I looked at him and said, you crazy son of a bitch, could poke my... <laughs> and then I used to lie awake at night. I think when we were in cabin seven, I was on the side where the people used to walk by the cabin and not through the main mm -hmm. channel. And when I would, it would be, everybody would be sleeping and it would be quiet and you'd hear somebody coming by. And if there was one or two nurses at the camp that year, you heard the whispers, the female voice, and the con whatever counselor or whoever it was walking by cabin, because you knew where they were going. Mm -hmm. They were going out to the stables <laughs> in that little shack. Mm -hmm. So I used to keep count. <laughs> you know? Sure. And I hear him go by, and I hear him talking. And I wonder, you know, I couldn't tell for sure who it was, but I could choose. By the time I got to cabin seven or whatever, I knew the difference between a male voice and a female yeah, voice. Yeah, for sure. And they'd be going back out to that cabin. But I remember they'd be going back out to that little shed when there was stables of horses. That's where they, there was a little, that's where they'd go to. Sure, know. sure, of course. And I'd hear <laughs> and that would stimulate my imagination. <laughs> so that was the connection with sex during those eight weeks. Mm. Wondering how many different people, and if it was the same female voice and then different male voices, <laughs> and how much action she had going for her. <laughs> of course. And so forth and stuff like that. But I loved it. Hmm. At the end, when he did that thing about me not being liked and the boys didn't want to be with me anymore, and I made that decision, my father said, what do you want to do, Sam? Maybe some other father would have reacted differently. Mm -hmm. But my father left this one up to me at the age of 15 or 16, whatever I was. Yeah. I says, no, I'll be back. I got it coming. That was about it, but I I can still sing the song. Yeah. Here's the camp of Jibber, colors red and white. Her <laughs> <laughs> will always fight with all the strength of my prayer. From camp of Jibber, staunch and true we stand. Victory for Ojibwa, the finest in the land. I mean, that's it. That's perfect. So that's it. And that's my whole thing. Well, so, I'm glad we got you back in the fold. Or at least, I'm oh glad, no, I'm I've, glad I've we got never, in touch with you. And I've, I've, I've never been out of the fold. And I don't think I'm speaking of those who are, are gone. People... He did something to me, and when the opportunity arose to say, no, you can't do that, I won't let you do that to me, mm -hmm. I did it. And that has nothing to do with those white cabins and that mess hall. That place up there, that camp, the things that happened there were during the formation 
of my soul. Okay, that is it. Another one in the books, Sandy DeVore. Uh, I hope it was everything I told you it would be. Uh, I will tell you that the most amazing part to me, I walked into that man's house and his camp photos were were up on the wall. And they weren't up on the wall just because I was coming over. They were in a place where they stay and his he had his medals and his trophies out. And um, that man loves camp. And that's beautiful. That's the thing we have. We all get to share in this magical place, and it means a little something different to each and every one of us. But at the end of the day, we walk away with these special feelings about this special place. That's what it is. That's the magic of what we do at Camp Ojibble for Boys. All right. As always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Drop me an email, Christopher, org. Of course, just swing by the website, see what's happening new over there. Swing by OJ90, check that out. See what's happening new on the front with the 90th summer celebration. We'll be back next week. For now, I'm heading outside to have a cigar.